welcome to the Game Theory Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Vecini. We are presented by The Athletic. Today on the show, Adam Spinella is in the building. We are going to dive deep into 2023 conference tournament season. March Madness is finally here. We want to dive into everything uh, that you need to know from a 2023 NBA draft perspective. There are a lot of really fun, exciting games that we're going to get a chance to evaluate over the course of the coming week. People who are just getting into the NBA draft now, they could probably use a real primer in terms of the games that will be important to watch here moving forward and the potential games that could be valuable over the course of this week. Next, we're going to actually, we're going to finish with that. The first thing we're going to talk about are the Memphis Grizzlies. John Morant is going to miss the next couple of games due to Instagram live and firearm reasons that we will discuss in a moment. And then we're going to talk a little bit about this Warriors-Lakers game that occurred on Sunday. I actually really just wanted to talk about the Warriors, if I was being completely honest. And I had Adam prep a little bit for the Warriors. And then this game happened, and I thought it was kind of an interesting one where there were a lot of a lot of fun things to track throughout the course of this game. A lot of very normal Lakersy things like playing tight games and Darvin Ham rotations that were questionable. And then a lot of interesting things as well in regard to uh, the way that the Warriors reacted to length and athleticism that the Lakers have. So Adam, we're going to start with this Memphis thing, but first, how's it going, man? How's hey, Sam. Weekend? Great weekend here. Uh, it's March. <laughs> it's March, like March Madness, yeah. conference tournaments. My boy, Tucker DeVries is in the NCAA tournament. Kennesaw State and Mr. Uh, Abdul Rahim leading his team all the way from the bottom to the top there. Like it's, it's already been a fun weekend of buzzer beaters as we're getting ready for the end of college basketball season to come here. Uh, but a lot of fun NBA action too. So I'm glad that we're doing a little bit of both here tonight. Yeah. Quick shout out to Amir Abdul Rahim. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Really, really impressive dude that I got a chance to talk to three years ago after they go one in 28 uh, during his first season there as a head coach. It's a total rebuild job at Kennesaw State, a program that had never been in the top 250 of Ken Palm before he got there, a program that had never even had a winning record at the Division One level over the course of the, I think it was almost 15 years that they'd been at the Division One level when Amir Abdur Rahim got there. And they go 26 and 8 this season. They win the Atlantic Sun tournament. They're going to be in the NCAA tournament. It's one of the most uh, impressive rebuilding jobs I've seen at the college level yeah. in quite a while. Uh, this is a program that has no history at the Division One level whatsoever. And uh, Amir Abdurrahim, I think, undeniably should be at the top of many uh, high major short lists. Maybe not at the top within the first three or four names, though, at the very least. And you know, again, I talked to him for an hour and a half. I asked him for like 15 minutes real quick just to talk about something. And he gave, he, we had like a really good conversation. He is going to be someone that is really genuine. You get them in the room in front of an AD. I think he's going to be super, super impressive. Uh, so, you know, shout out to Amir Abdur Rahim and uh, the Kennesaw State Owls. I believe they are the Owls, right? I believe that to be the case. And, and another one that I just want to give a, a shout out to here, uh, or not necessarily a shout out, but 
What's the deal with this whole transition to the Division One rule that prevents teams from not making the NCAA tournament? Ridiculous. Ridiculous. What a money-making opportunity for the NCAA in general to have a team that is moving up from the Division Two level to be able to potentially get into the NCAA tournament. And yeah. what a story that would be at the Cinderella of all Cinderellas. If they win their conference, let them into the big dance. I understand if they're transitioning down a level, but when you're Division One and you've got – Schools that are transitioning up, let them in. Most ridiculous rule, something that always bothers me as we get to March and we see a couple of these programs knocking on the door of the NCAAs. No question, but let's go from talking about exciting things to very disappointing things. And we have to start with the Memphis Grizzlies here. It's the biggest news in the NBA right now, I think, undeniably, and for good reason. I mean – John Morant's going to miss the next two games uh, to be away from the team is the way it was phrased. The NBA has started an investigation into an incident where John Morant showed a, uh, it's unclear who had the firearm on his Instagram live, but there was some sort of firearm on his Instagram live uh, when he and his friends were out at a strip club. Uh, you know, why an investigation here? I, I would imagine that the NBA wants to confirm uh, or potentially find out if Morant has brought uh, firearms onto team grounds, which is expressly prohibited uh, based on Article 6, Section 9 of the CBA, whenever a player is physically present at a facility or venue owned, operated, or being used by a team, the NBA or any league-related entity uh and whenever a player is traveling on any NBA-related business, whether on behalf of the player's team, the NBA, or any league-related entity, such player shall not possess a firearm or any kind of uh, – or any deadly weapon, it looks like. Uh, for purposes of the foregoing, a facility or venue includes, but is not limited to, an arena practice facility – Team or league officer facility, uh, an all-star NBA playoff venue, and the site of a promotional or charitable appearance. Uh, you know, we'll see what comes of this investigation. The context here surrounding John Morant is over the course of the last few months, there have been many reports of uh, John Morant making some questionable decisions. There was an incident uh, with at a game involving the Indiana Pacers where acquaintances of Ja aggressively confronted members of the Pacers traveling party near the team's bus in the loading area of FedEx Forum. And later, someone in a slow-moving SUV that Morant was riding in trained a red laser on them. The league conducted an investigation interviewing numerous witnesses and reviewed video surveillance following the allegations made by the Pacers organization. While uh, they substantiated that a post-game situation arose that was confrontational, based on interviews and other evidence gathered, they could not corroborate that any individual threatened others with a weapon. There was also uh, an accusation in a July 26th incident at Morant's Memphis home. Uh, There was uh, a situation that took place uh, at a Memphis mall uh, where a security guard said that Morant threatened him during an altercation. It's a lot of things just seemingly snowballing upon itself uh, for John Morant and for his part, uh, his agency tandem released a statement from Durant on Saturday afternoon saying, I take full responsibility for my actions last night. 
I'm sorry to my family, teammates, coaches, fans, partners, the city of Memphis, and the entire Grizzlies organization for letting you down. I'm going to take some time away to get help and work on learning better methods of dealing with stress and my overall well-being. Uh, Adam, now that I've laid out the context here, just what is your immediate uh, immediate takeaway for all of this? It's sad, Sam. It's really yeah. sad. Um you know, I, I think that there is a part of this equation that's sometimes too easy for us behind a computer screen sitting here on the Internet on our phone looking at things to really dive into, which is these guys are still really young men who are grappling yeah. with and wrestling with so many different pressures that almost none of us can possibly imagine or fathom to be this famous, to have this much wealth at a young age to come from the backgrounds that some of these guys come from and have to really wrestle with how much do I stay loyal to my roots versus how much do I kind of protect the the image that I need to portray in the media and being uh, a guy that has this large of a platform. There are a lot of internal challenges that guys can, can wrestle with it. That doesn't excuse the action, but I think it's sad to see times when the pressure of trying to make um, decisions that thread the needle, so to speak, go wrong. And I think that that's where we're at right now is that John Morant is yeah. trying to do a little bit too much of um, – at, at this point, it, you know, I don't want to – I don't want to jump too too far to end too many conclusions, but I think at the end of the day, it's just it's it's sad that that we've gotten to this point of too many things snowballing, like you said, and too many pieces of evidence to say, you know what, this is just a coincidence. Like at some point, it's got to stop. Well, and I think that the disappointing thing to me uh, beyond Jaws' actions, which he needs to get a handle on all of this, yeah. uh, undeniably, is it did seem like there was a bit of a bit of a reaction yesterday to him stating that, you know, I need to take some time away to deal with stress and my overall well-being. It seemed like people weren't willing to take that at face value as much. It seemed like people, you know, thought he was in some ways hiding behind the cloak of uh, mental non-well-being in order to do so. And, I, I just think that that's kind of wrong for people to get that impression at the end of the day. I mean, this is a guy that 18 months ago in an interview with Taylor Rooks, uh, right at the start of, I believe, last season, uh, discussed how, you know, he's someone that just will always say, yeah, I'm good. Like, I'm okay. Um, even if he's not feeling okay. And that, you know, he said actually in this thing that one of his favorite quotes is that, you don't realize that you're drowning when you're trying to be everyone's anchor. And, you know, he was thinking about that quote and how he oftentimes has to put himself first uh, as opposed to, you know, his family, his friends, the people around him. And he just always worries about everyone, you know, around him being straight, but sometimes he just like neglects to worry about himself in some regards. And that's when he can, kind of get into a bit of a dark place is what he actually said. And, uh, you know, you know, Taylor Rook specifically asked him about like doing therapy and it, it becomes clear that like he hasn't, you know, undertaken that step at this point. And it seems like it is something that I think would be probably pretty beneficial to him to talk to someone about this. But it, what it comes down to is, you know, I think a lot of 
players, former players have spoken pretty eloquently about this yeah. over the course of the weekend. Yeah. You know, I think that we're in a place now with Ja where he needs to do some real searching in terms of the people who are around him. And, you know, it's hard a lot of the time. These, these are difficult situations that you can't wrap your head around if you're not someone that, you know, came from nothing and that has to be responsible for many people's lives and has all of the money that John Morant has, you know, someone that is, you know, making $200 million over the next five years. Right. So it's, uh, I think I'm disappointed by the fact that people aren't being a little bit more understanding while also acknowledging that John Morant's making terrible decisions right now. And I think the people, uh, people around him need to, the people who are tightest with him within his circle, his family, uh, veteran, you know, people within his life who've gone through this in the NBA really need to get around him at this point and, and try to, try to stop this cycle from occurring. I, I don't want to absolve him from what's happening yeah. by any stretch. Uh, the, the other disappointing thing here though, is that to Michael Cole, who is the beat writer for the Memphis Grizzlies uh, with commercial appeal, he tweeted over the weekend as well. I can 100% tell you that there are some older people in John Moran's circle who have had these talks with him. It's all up to him at this point. He has to realize what is at stake. That doesn't seem to be the case right now. And it could damage something special in Memphis. I hope that this is a wake up call. I hope that all of this makes him recognize uh, there is something special here you know, with his talent, with his abilities, uh, with him to potentially be a role model to people, uh, you know, that come up from his uh, environment and from his background. I think that Jalen Rose spoke really eloquently about that over on ESPN uh, over the weekend. I believe that was on Saturday evening as well. Uh and one of the things he talked about is just going from being, you know, one of the people in your family and one of the people in your group of friends to being the leader of that. And you have to be willing to say no. You have to be willing to cut people out when the time comes. You have to be willing to make difficult decisions that maybe as a 23-year-old that you haven't had to make before uh, in your life. And, you know, I, I really hope that John Morant's willing to do that. Uh, you know, Kyle Kuzma, you know, in an article that David Aldridge wrote, uh, David Aldridge spoke to him and, you know, he said that, you know, I just feel that as black men in our country, uh, especially us in the position we have that we're blessed to be one percenters, we're blessed to have in this case a shoe deal, $200 million on the horizon. And I think that a lot of the time we are figures, uh, but we're role models too. And we have to realize that everybody, every kid, everybody in general, they're watching us. Uh, it's unfortunate. I know when I first came to the league, I had all my homeboys around me from back in Flint. Uh, we had great times. It was very important to keep my homies around because I grew up with them. But if they're just yesing me and not allowing me to be the best version of myself, are they really my homies? It sucks, man. It definitely sucks. Man, it's all about your circle. You got to keep your shit tight. For us, like I said, we're blessed to have these situations, to have all this money, all this clout, and we want to use it for as much good as possible, no matter who you are. Uh, he'll learn from it. He's so young. He's got a bright future. It's just part of his journey, and it's okay. It's part of his journey. I hope that that's the case. Like I, I genuinely just really hope that this is a part of the journey that John Morant has to undertake. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm glad it's happening now where – 
there haven't been any shots fired from these firearms, at least based off of reporting and everything like that. I'm glad that, uh, you know, th- this all seems to be hopefully a very public wake up call that happened before any gun related violence at the very least right. uh, yeah. within John Morant circle. Yeah. We, we hope that this is just a chapter in his story, not the overall story of John Morant, that it kind of goes down with something like this. And I'm really glad you brought up Jalen Rose, Kuzma, other players, because none of us can understand the pressures that a guy like John Morant is going through. The only people yeah. who can relate to him in that regard are guys who have walked that walk before the players in the NBA veterans, guys who have retired, who might be able to understand. And the fact that they have spoken up so candidly and so uh, passionately about this topic, I think shows that there's going to be a lot of support for John Morant and, being able to get through some of this and correct some of the mistakes that he has been able to make. I always say, you know, pressure can do one of two things can burst pipes or make diamonds. And right now it's, it's been a pressure filled situation for John Morant. Maybe that's what's led to a lot of these incidents. I don't really know. And quite frankly, don't necessarily need to know, but uh, we hope that he, ends up responding to this the right way and he can end up being a diamond out of all of this because uh, there's, there's, there's still a lot of good to to who that guy is. And he's shown that through his time with the Grizzlies and beforehand. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, unfortunately this wasn't the only news about the Memphis Grizzlies that came out over the weekend. Brandon Clark uh, is going to miss the rest of the season with a torn Achilles. Brandon Clark has been like a sneaky, really, really important player for them, especially in the moments where Steven Adams has missed games here uh, due to his injury. When you saw this news that Brandon Clark is going to be out uh, for uh, the rest of the season, what was your immediate reaction to this? Yeah, it's, it's tough because he's a really good backup big man to have defensively and the utility that he would bring in a postseason series because he's really smart. He knows how to handle a lot of different coverages rotationally and he can guard both fours and fives and stretches because of, of his lateral quickness. I I think that there was, that's going to be a big loss for them. Um, Maybe this leans into a little bit more of like Santi Aldama and Jaron Jackson Jr. together. Like they're, they're not completely lost in terms of front court depth by, by any means, but at the end of the day, this is going to be a tough loss for them on the defensive end of the floor. Yeah, it's really, really interesting, I think, in regard to the Santi of it all. I do want to read off just some notes here statistically, right? So lineups with Jaron Jackson and Brandon Clark, where they are the four and the five in the front court, those lineups were a plus 12.9 per 100 possessions in nearly 500 minutes. That's like best in the league level numbers over the course of the full season. Uh, With Steven Adams and Jaron Jackson, it's plus 13.7. They just absolutely obliterate teams defensively. Uh, The thing is that they do have some replacements. They either just haven't used them or they haven't been as effective. Uh, And in playoff series, we know that the Grizzlies like to play smaller. They do end up sitting Steven Adams for larger swaths of games because of Steven Adams's offensive limitations. A lot of the time in terms of being a true rim runner, being able to space the floor for John Morant. Uh, So here, Jaron Jackson and Santi Aldama, they've only played 42 minutes together at the four and the five this year. I don't know why up until recently, they started to test this a little bit, but I'm not totally sure why, they haven't gone to this more in those minutes. They played 42 minutes together like that. 
they're plus 42.4 net rating. Like they've played really, really well in those minutes. And you would think that with how well Santi Aldama has played at times this season, you would want to go to that a little bit more just to test it out, to get it ready for the moments you might need it. Or in case something like this happens where you genuinely desperately need another option uh, to be able to play a smaller ball front court situation. Jaron Jackson and Xavier Tillman, they're only a plus 4.4 net rating together. You do run into the same inherent limitations offensively with uh, Xavier Tillman as you do with Steven Adams. Uh, it's it's just going to be really interesting to see what they end up doing in these front court scenarios because I, I think the answer is Santi. I do. I, I think he is their best option here. I wonder also if we get, you know, some Jake LaRavia moments here. Uh, I know that uh, it, it is very possible that they start to utilize him a little bit more often. Uh, you, you know, you look at their game against the Nuggets, you know, it was, he got three minutes in a blowout, but, you know, it was John Conchar, it was Luke Kennard getting a, a lot of the bench minutes in that game. You look at the game against the Rockets as well. Uh, you know, it was John Conchar, it was a bit of Zaire Williams, but it was Brandon Clark and Santi Aldama playing 20 to 25 minutes. LaRavia has been pretty good in the G League this year. I would look at him over someone like David Roddy, who's been up with the big team, uh, to give them a little bit of a higher upside option that can really knock down shots. But at the end of the day, I think it's Santi. And, uh, or maybe like some smaller lineups with John Conchar and you know Dylan Brooks at the four, three and the four next to Bain and John Morant in the playoffs. I, I don't know. I mean, you know, Zaire Williams has dealt with some injury stuff this year. It's... They need Santi. They they need to play Santi, and they need to just get the reps with him and Jaron and make sure it's going to be all good. Totally agree. I think that that's part of the focus of the rest of this regular season is trying to work through the kinks of how those two guys look together on the offensive end, on the defensive end. I'll give you kind of an alternative here, though, Sam, is trying to find ways to keep Steven Adams on the floor more. Do you think the acquisition of a guy like Luke Kennard, who helps space the floor so much more purely and has a very simple impact offensively, can help offset some of that, knowing that what Steven and Jaron bring on the back line defensively can make up for some of Luke's defensive issues? Yeah, maybe. That's not impossible. I don't mind that uh, in terms of being an option. I do worry about if he and John Morant together can hold up in a backcourt defensively. I, I think that there would be some real issues, even with that defensive insulation that they would have around the rim. Yeah, I, that would be my holdup with it. Uh, yeah. Can Luke Kennard and John Morant play together? And you're obviously going to play John Morant uh, in the playoffs. So yeah, I, I just, I think that's tricky. Like I think that it needs to be, you know, maybe, maybe it's Conchar. Like you hope that, you know, Conchar keeps hitting 37% of his threes like he is so far this year yeah. and, you know, playing intelligent, high-level basketball and you play smaller. I, I think it's got to be Santi. I think Santi is the guy that's going to have to step up. I think he's been the best of this group so far this season. I think yeah. he's the highest upside of this group uh, outside of maybe LaRavia long-term. Uh, I do really still like Jake, even though I know he hasn't played a lot this year. Um, I, I don't know if I want to trust a rookie necessarily either. I think I'd be more inclined to trust Santi, who's been within that organization for an extra year on top of it. So I think that's what it comes down to. Can Santi Aldama, you know, 
handle these bigger lineups for the Grizzlies moving forward. Yeah, I mean, there's a mismatch nightmare that comes from having another seven footer who can handle, stretch the floor a little bit, do different things offensively. Like, even if the defense isn't pristine with Aldama and Jaron Jackson on the floor, like it change, it kind of changes the role that Jaron likes to play because he's got to be a little bit more anchored towards the basket in certain regards. Uh, yep. But man, the offensive trade off might be worth it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, and they've been starting Xavier Tillman throughout this time, right? And Xavier's had some games. Like, I thought Xavier was probably their best player, maybe, um, maybe outside of Jaron and Ja at the very least. Uh, I thought he was the best player outside of those two in their game against Denver, where they lost by 16. And then the end result was uh, the Ja Morant strip club incident. So maybe that is, maybe that is what you look to do. Yeah. I mean, Tillman. Again, he can give you some spot minutes here or there, but at the end of the day, I don't see him taking away from any Stephen Adams minutes in the postseason. That if you're going to trust one of those guys who's a kind of non-shooting, bigger option, you're going to go with Stephen in, in a playoff setting. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, let's let's uh, do. I will just close on this. This is the first real batch of like true adversity that this Grizzlies team with John Jaron is the core his face like you know all due respect to like some of the Dylan Brooks antics and you know Desmond Baines injuries and things like that Des is great and I don't mean to you know minimize his impact on the team he's phenomenal but th- this is now like the real true test for them I think moving forward and I think we're going to learn a lot about them and we're going to learn a lot about John Morant in the coming weeks uh, in terms of how he reacts and responds to everything that has just occurred with them and how this core reacts and responds. They have a tendency uh, in general to go like us against the world. You know, this is, these are the guys that the Grizzlies front office loves, right? They love these dudes that are hyper competitive. They are uh, hyper aggressive. Like th- this is who they love, right? Th- these are the players that they really, really enjoy drafting. And, you know, they, they are back against the wall kind of guys. They feel like they always have their backs against the wall, even when it's not the case. And frankly, it hasn't been the case over the course of their run. How they act when their backs are actually against the wall now is going to be very, very interesting to me uh, because th- this is an organization that I think has immense upside. I often speak about how much respect I have for their front office. I think that it is an incredibly intelligent group of people uh, that have built a really exciting, fun, young roster here. And I, I think that this is going to be a really, really, uh, really good test for them moving forward where we're going to learn a lot. Totally agree. Okay. Let's take a quick commercial break and we'll be back. Let's talk a little bit about this Warriors Lakers game. We're talking about players securing the bag when they get drafted in June. I need to tell you about securing your internet connection with NordVPN. What is a VPN? It's a virtual private network. A VPN reroutes your traffic through a remote server, encrypting it in the process. This is going to hide your location from your ISP, hackers, and from other people looking to get your data. 
everybody knows that I watch as many movies as I can. I think I've probably watched like 40 or 50 this year already. Some movies are blocked in Australia. It's really hard for me to watch them. Uh, for instance, uh, anybody who's tried to get their hands on Godzilla minus one recently knows that it's basically only available in Japan and you need a VPN if you want to go to like Amazon prime or something to be able to watch it. So when I'm blocked from watching a movie in Australia, I just queue up my VPN. I change my location and it unlocks a category of movies from all of my favorite streaming services. As somebody who's always on the go, connecting to public Wi-Fi is a necessity, but it's also just a goldmine for hackers. That's where Nord comes in, creating a secure tunnel for my data to travel through away from prying guys. There are other benefits to Nord as well. Your browsing history is yours and yours alone. Your virtual location is masked from those who seek to track your every move. It's like having a force field around your online identity. Nord VPN also goes the extra mile with threat protection. Malware, trackers, dodgy ads, they're all going to get blocked. It's like having a shot blocking big around your devices 24-7. Game Theory is offering an exclusive deal for NordVPN. You're going to get four extra months and up to 75% off subscriptions. Just head to nordvpn.com slash game theory, G-A-M-E-T-H-E-O-R-Y to claim your account. Plus, with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee, you've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Go to nordvpn.com slash game theory to claim your account. nordvpn.com slash game theory. Guys, I can't emphasize enough uh, how much I use Nord every day of my life. Uh, Nord is a fantastic sponsor for us. So go support Nord. And it's a great product. So nordvpn.com slash game theory. All right, we're back. Spins. The Los Angeles Lakers beat the Golden State Warriors today, 113-105 in Stephen Curry's return game. Steph plays 32 minutes, goes 8 for 20 from the field, 27 points, 6 assists, 2 rebounds, 5 of 13 from 3. Uh, this is a Golden State Warriors team that coming into this game had won five in a row. Uh, this is a Los Angeles Lakers team that obviously is without LeBron James currently. What were your impressions of this game? I, I found it to be <laughs> one of those things where it was completely fascinating and yet also uh, so indicative in many ways of where these two organizations are right now. I mean, look, can the Lakers play one game that's just like a clean, fluid 48 minutes where it's not up and down? Are they capable of that, Sam? Like, <laughs> no, I, they're not. <laughs> I don't think they are either. And and look, it's LeBron is out, so I don't want to go too deep into what the, the Lakers are necessarily going to look like in the postseason, right? Like this is this is going to be a different team with a healthy LeBron. Golden State changing up some rotation stuff differently because I think Steph's minutes were a little bit more managed than they might typically be uh, as soon as he's he's kind of eased back into this. But at the end of the day, it's you can never count the Golden State Warriors out with the way that they shoot the basketball. And they can get blisteringly hot in a hurry. They can really erase deficits. They got down in that first quarter pretty big early on. I thought Anthony Davis was great out of the gates. And then, like, Jordan Poole hits a couple shots. 
And all of a sudden the Warriors and their energy and the way that they, they shoot it kind of, uh, kind of take over. But what I'm noticing right now, Sam, is that even in regular season games, both teams are much more willing to sag off of non-shooters and try to use that as a point to interrupt opponent offenses. That We saw that in the, in the first half of this game in a major way, that the Lakers did not care if Jonathan Kaminga touched the ball outside of 18 feet, and yep. vice versa. The Warriors did the exact same thing with Jared Vanderbilt. Yep. Yeah, really interesting chess match in that way, I thought. Uh, You know, even like, even like Dante, a lot of the time, it felt like they were, they were trying to get the ball toward Dante's hands, right? Uh, They weren't necessarily, like, if he took a three, they were comfortable, it felt like. You know what I mean? And Dante is not a bad shooter. He's just not like a lights out guy. And Dante played well in this game, by the way, outside of the great. two for eight shooting. You know, he had the six assists versus zero turnovers. He had seven rebounds. He was tough defensively. Like there was a lot yeah. that he brought to the table. And I'm a big fan of that addition to the Warriors in general. But it's just a really, really interesting dynamic for the Warriors because this is a team that I think looks great a majority of the time when they play at home and they look terrible on the road. And I've no, I think that that's going to change as Steph gets back and gets more integrated and they start to play more with Draymond Green and Clay Thompson. And eventually they're going to get Andrew Wiggins back as well. Yep. What the Warriors end up doing with some of their depth stuff is going to be interesting. Do they lean on Jonathan Kaminga or do they trust Andre Iguodala? Uh, Anthony Lamb, it seems like, is going nowhere from this rotation for reasons beyond my comprehension. But uh, he, he he wasn't the problem today. Like, I thought he played well. But part of the reason he played well is something we'll talk about with the Lakers uh, moving forward sure. uh, with Darvin Ham. I, I would imagine the way that this goes is that, you know, essentially – Andrew Wiggins hopefully takes all of the Anthony Anthony yeah. Lamb minutes. Anthony Lamb played 27 minutes tonight. Uh, is that an eight point difference? Honestly, might be. Like, <laughs> yeah, could, very well could be. Uh, but we're closing in on seeing fully operational Warriors, and I think that them getting those five wins in a row ahead of seeing fully operational Warriors was really really important uh, for them. And then on top of it, eventually they're going to get Gary Payton back hopefully for the playoff run. Yeah, and look, the, the health is going to be a, a huge thing for the Warriors moving forward. I, I think that point you made about kind of Anthony Lamb's minutes being reserved for Wiggins is an important one because I keep asking myself, why you know, why is he playing 27 minutes a night and Kaminga 10 to 13? I think we saw both facets of that tonight. One is that it's about preserving the role for what Wiggins will be able to play. And at this point, Lamb is a more natural carryover to what Wiggins provides than Kaminga. And the reason for that is kind of point number two, which is teams don't respect Kaminga outside the three-point line, that when you're trying to play him with Kavon Looney, with Draymond Green, there's all of a sudden very little spacing because, you know, what the Lakers did early, I believe that they, um, you know, they were sagging off Kaminga so, so hard, and he doesn't really know how to react to that yet. Draymond is used to it at this point. He knows how to dribble handoff and find guys and operate as a screener. He's got great energy on the glass. Like Kaminga got a couple long rebounds and was able to turn those into some dunks or layup attempts. But everything else that he tried to do when he was sagged off of was like, okay, I guess this is my 
my chance to shoot the ball or like I'm just going to stand here and dribble and wait for Jordan Poole to come get it and do something. Uh, that was a real flaw that's kind of been revealed to me. And, and that's where I wonder moving forward to the postseason, as the Warriors get healthy, they get Gary Payton back, they get Andrew Wiggins back. We're starting to see some Andre Iguodala minutes. Does Iggy end up surpassing Kaminga in the postseason as being a part of the rotation? Because offensively, yeah. they're going to be guarded the same way. I think that you might want to lean on a little bit of the experience and the IQ that, that Iggy brings to the table. I'm not sure. I think there's a pretty real chance uh, that that ends up being the case, but we will see. There are moments where Andre, or, uh, where Jonathan Kaminga looks like a real difference maker. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there are games where he looks like someone that could be a real liability in the playoffs and finding that consistency, I think, for him in terms of the way teams treat him is going to be really important and getting comfortable with the way the teams treat him as an offensive player. I'm glad that you brought up that point. On the other side, I would just love to see the Lakers play a normal game at some point. <laughs> yeah, right. Jeez. Like. And part of this is, look, they're injured. LeBron James did not play. D'Angelo Russell did not play in this game. Part of this is also just like there are just consistent lineup constructions where I do not fathom what Darvin Ham is doing. Like he rolled out, you know, Dennis Schroeder, Lonnie Walker, Troy Brown, Rui, and Mo Bamba in the first. He rolled out the, those four perimeter players and Wenyan Gabriel to start the second. I think I remember Mo Bamba like hurting his ankle goal or something like that off the top of my head in this game uh and it's just like yeah when you're going to do that of course it's going to go from a 20 point deficit to for the warriors to a six point deficit right of course that the lead is going to evaporate what i thought was really interesting today beyond the lineup construction that i think could eventually crater this team if darvin ham doesn't get a handle on it uh when you start playing great teams consistently i think that teams will be able to take advantage of this in the playoffs uh and also that that issue will be fixed once they get D'Angelo Russell and LeBron yeah, James. Right, right. You know, instead of having to play Rui 20 minutes, you maybe play him five minutes. And instead of playing Lonnie Walker 15 minutes, you don't play Lonnie Walker. And it just ends up being a shortened rotation with Austin Reeves and maybe a bit of Rui, maybe a bit of Gabriel or Bamba to give Anthony Davis a spell and try and figure it out from there. What what I thought was interesting was the way that the Warriors, it seemed like, kind of struggled with the length and the activity levels uh, of the Lakers front court. And I think that Jared Vanderbilt and Anthony Davis just playing together and being literally all over the court at once, Anthony Davis with his length and just understanding of angles, especially in the paint now. And then Jared Vanderbilt just being everywhere, like all the time, right? Uh, it, I think, was a microcosm of why teams will not want to play this group in the playoffs. This is a dangerous Lakers team now if they get healthy. Like, if LeBron James and D'Angelo Russell are both playing with this team – and you can run out those two with Jared Vanderbilt, Anthony Davis, and like Austin Reeves or Malik Beasley. Yeah. That's a pretty sick lineup that's super long, super active, super mobile, has a lot of rim protection, has a lot of playmaking ability with Russell and LeBron. Like this group becomes dangerous in a hurry yeah. Yeah. if they figure their shit out and they get healthy. 
Vanderbilt's just the perfect piece for this team because as yes. as LeBron ages, and this is a common thing that the players go through as they get into their 30s, you tend to slide up the lineup a little bit more defensively. So LeBron, who's been more of a three, so to speak, his whole career, like you'd think as he ages, you want to put him on guys who aren't as quick athletically, who maybe he can use his strength a little bit more in the inside the lane. Like Vanderbilt has the activity and the length to be able to take those perimeter assignments a little bit more defensively in matchups or at times when it's appropriate. That really yep. what they have here is a, a piece in Vanderbilt who, if they need to switch fours and fives with him in AD, they can do that. If they need to switch threes and fours with him and LeBron, they can do that. If they just need to stick Vanderbilt on a really good perimeter score, like we saw a week ago when they played the Mavericks and he was just guarding Luka Doncic, they can do that. There's so yep. much that Darvin Ham can do on the defensive side of the floor that now he sticks Vanderbilt, AD, and LeBron out there, and it's just about finding floor spacing and shooting around that to make the offense work. Here's yep. here's one piece that I want to kind of go to on on the offensive end, if I could go there real quickly. Yeah. Uh, what we saw today was Golden State really sagging off of Jared Vanderbilt on the offensive end, trying to turn him into a shooter. And he didn't knock down a three. Wasn't very impressive in that regard. Uh, but Golden State put Draymond on him and sagged off and had Looney guarding Anthony Davis, which is something I would expect a lot more teams to try to do as they move forward to the postseason. Vanderbilt showed what we all hoped Russell Westbrook would do with this team offensively when he's being sagged off. Yeah. He took a couple shots. He didn't knock any of them down, but he started to play a little bit more in transition and try to create for others and push tempo. He knew exactly what to do in terms of dribble handoffs, to try to get other guys open. He slid down to the dunker spot and was willing to play off of Anthony Davis on his short rolls or, or, you know, when he would isolate at the elbows there's a real functionality that he brings to this team of even if he's a non-shooter, just the fact that he's willing and able to do some of these things that Russell Westbrook could or should have been able to do provides so much for them on the offensive end of the floor. Like he's okay, even though he doesn't shoot the ball well because of the way that they're using Anthony Davis, the way that he's creating and because Vanderbilt knows what to do. He's just, I love this guy. He is the perfect fit with this Lakers team. Totally agree. And his activity level in this game was just outstanding. Had 10 points, 13 rebounds, four assists. It wasn't quite, uh, was that game one weekend ago or two weekends ago that we talked about? I think it was Um, one. Yeah. Yeah. Where he was just absolutely outstanding. You know, I had like a dozen, it felt like offensive rebounds. Um, But I mean, Jared Vanderbilt's a killer. For this team, it, it's an absolutely enormous addition for them that makes them very dangerous defensively and a very difficult team to match up with on that. And yeah, look, I, I mean, for the Lakers, it does in large part depend on LeBron coming back. But, you know, Anthony Davis just completely taking over in this game, uh, completely being able to shoulder uh, all of the responsibility. It was huge. It was absolutely huge for the Lakers. And uh, as long as we get this version of Anthony Davis moving forward, and I think we are, I think this is just who he is now for the rest of the year. uh, It's going to be big. I do also want to quickly, like, you know, I shouted out that shitty Lakers lineup earlier. I'll at least like, look like Troy Brown, I think deserves like momentary flowers here. 
over the course of his last 22 games, he's playing 26 minutes a night. He's only shooting 44% from the field, be shooting 38% from three yeah. when two thirds of his shots are coming in spot up three point situations. He's rebounding. Well, he has a three to one assist to turnover ratio. He makes the good read, makes the quick read, keeps the ball flowing offensively. He's not like an elite level defender, but he doesn't fuck up on defense. Really? Yeah. Like, Troy Brown becoming a real, you know, bench player for the Lakers. I don't know if you feel great about him starting and playing 41 minutes like he did tonight, but him becoming a genuine rotation player for the Lakers gives them another option, which is really, really important here moving forward for them. And Uh, and a big three late too. a big three late. Yep. Yep. Absolutely right. Okay. Now we're going to get the NBA draft stuff. This is where it's going to be fun. Our our goal here, we're going to dive into conference tournaments uh, within college basketball over the course of the next week that will hopefully give people a bit of a backing in terms of what to watch. What teams should you be watching? What players should you be watching? What matchups are exciting? Obviously, so much of this is dependent on the brackets, right? So in that vein... Here we go. We got brackets, baby. Whoa. Look at this. We're in a good spot here. We got brackets for the conference tournaments, and we're going to talk a little bit about the SEC first because I think that that is by far the one that I will tell you NBA scouts are most interested in. Yeah. Undeniably. Uh, For people listening at home, you know, it's still going to be fine. You're just not going to be able to look at the bracket like people are on the YouTube channel. But – this will at least give us a real road in terms of the prospect matchups that are likely to happen, could happen, everything like that. Okay. When you look at the SEC tournament here, where you see Ole Miss, South Carolina, we immediately get one Gigi Jackson playing on Wednesday this week in the United States. Uh, And then if South Carolina does win against an Ole Miss team that, you know, Kermit Davis has already been removed from that position. Yep. They then get to play Tennessee. That's an interesting, interesting game. They've been clobbered by the Volunteers twice this year. I think Gigi had his worst performance against the Volunteers. I actually did a video breakdown of the first time that they they uh, faced off this year over on my YouTube channel. So a quick shameless plug there. But uh, it, it's a tough matchup because Tennessee's so strong defensively. The Gamecocks don't have much offensive player movement ball movement and they have a lot of different bodies that they can throw who are experienced at a guy like Gigi Jackson when he wants to go one-on-one they're also a disciplined like motion-based offensive team that can grind you out a little bit more and expose help defensive flaws like it's it's a really tough game for Gigi he has not shown particularly well in the, the games that he's played against the volunteers this year you would hope that he can learn something and put it you know, a little bit of change into practice. It's hard hard to make the same mistakes three times against the same team and not kind of learn from it or show, show growth. For, so for, for me, that's what I'm going to be looking for from Gigi Jackson if South Carolina is able to advance and end up moving to day two of the SEC tournament is can he just show a little bit better than he has against Tennessee because those first two were really tough. Okay, so the matchups that I'm looking at here particularly, let, let's start with Arkansas and Auburn, yeah. right? So right here, Arkansas ends up as the 10th seed in this tournament despite having Anthony Black and Nick Smith. Not great. They're going to make the NCAA tournament. 
And this is a team that could be dangerous in the NCAA tournament, depending on matchups, especially given that Eric Musselman is very, very good at scheming and figuring out weaknesses to exploit against opposing teams. Having said that, this Auburn matchup is going to be a really good one to watch from an NBA draft perspective with an, in a number of different ways, I would say, because Arkansas is a team with these bigger guards. Anthony Black is six foot seven. Nick Smith is six foot five. Auburn is going to play lineups where they have two undersized guards out there a lot of the time. Zepp Jasper is six foot one. You know, Wendell Green is five eleven. Katie Johnson, six foot tall. Like there are real moments where this group is going to be drastically undersized against Arkansas. And it's going to be really interesting. I mean, they beat Arkansas by 13 earlier this year. That was without Nick Smith, obviously. Uh, But it feels like Arkansas has never gotten it back together, gotten it back on track ever since the Trevon Brazil injury, as much as anything. That, That Trevon Brazil injury was enormous for them because it really hindered their lack of floor spacing uh, around Anthony Black and Nick Smith. Auburn is big in the front court. They will play Janai Broom. They will play, uh, who's the other big one? Jalen Williams, the six foot eight kid that like is a monster athlete that goes out and like block shots. They will have Dylan Cardwell, who's like a bigger six foot 11 kid. They'll occasionally play uh, Yoan Treor, depending on the matchup, right? Like, He hasn't played a ton recently, but there are visions where you could see them trying to go to want, go to him if things really break. Right. So I I look at this game as being really intriguing from an NBA draft perspective because Anthony black and Nick Smith are guys that aren't really going to have space to operate on the interior they're going to have to live and die almost by the three-point shot, it feels like, or by getting out in transition. And they're going to have to match up with these smaller guards. I trust Anthony Black in that regard. Yep. We're going to see with Nick Smith a little bit more defensively and how much he can lock in in a, uh elimination-style game. So I'm really, really, really excited to see the way that this game could work out and the way that this matchup could uh, could end up bearing itself out. Yeah, the half-court spacing is going to be just awful from both teams. Like, Auburn's offense is not a joy to watch by any means, and Arkansas doesn't have a ton of three-point floor spacing. I think this is a big game for Anthony Black because offensively he's, yes, going to need to show that he can either mismatch post some guys and just use his physicality and strength to overwhelm on offense and be a mismatch opportunist or space the floor. The other side of things, too, I think that he's going to have to have a really good game against uh, Wendell Green because if he can force turnovers, Auburn's offense is very static. And by that, I mean ball kind of gets pounded in the middle third of the floor while there's screening happening off ball, things going on in the paint on the baseline. It's an opportunity for him to use his size, his length, his lateral quickness to try to pressure and create turnovers. I think that's where Musselman's teams are usually at their most dangerous which is where they can really fly around and create pressure on the perimeter defensively. So if Anthony Black can be the tone setter in that regard, get Arkansas transition points, be able to get out and, and you know attack the basket, get 8, 10 points in that regard, now the half-court stuff isn't as big of a bother or, or going to drag them down a little bit more. So uh, big yep. game for Arkansas. Yep. Uh, the other one in that second round is Mississippi State and Florida. You know, mm-hmm. Mississippi State, 
particularly, I think, would pose an intriguing matchup for Alabama in the quarterfinals in the next round. Yeah. Uh, this is a team that played Alabama pretty tight, actually, in both games that they played against them this year. Uh, that game in January where they were at home, that was a three-point game that Alabama really had to make a bit of a run later in the game in order to get that win. Brandon Miller ends up with 13-6, two assists in that game. Uh, looking through the box score now, Javon Quinterly actually played really well in that game. Mississippi State has one of the best defenses in the country. They are a top 10 defense yep. uh, in the nation, according to Kempom. I-, I would point out that this is a team that really, really uh, could pose some interesting question marks for Alabama. They're also a team that's on the bubble, yeah. which means that there will be a real uh, – uh, a real drive from them. So that that's what I would be hoping to get in the quarterfinals here is we, I hope we get Mississippi state, Alabama. Uh, I would hope that we also get Kentucky playing uh, someone in the finals from an NBA draft perspective, or at least hopefully we get Arkansas, Kentucky again, because that would give us case and Wallace against Anthony black and Nick Smith. As long as case and Wallace uh, can get healthy here, moving forward. Uh, seems like he will be able to play in the conference tournament, but doesn't necessarily uh, don't, don't necessarily have that completely borne out yet. Yeah. War of attrition, again, from an NBA draft perspective, Arkansas, Kentucky, Alabama are the big teams to watch, which mate with major high-level prospects. But from a, a college basketball and like how solid they are as a team standpoint, Missouri and Texas A&M are just absolutely fantastic. I want to give a quick shout out to Kobe Brown at, at Missouri. Yeah. Really underrated player for them. Might end up being in the conversation for SEC player of the year. Six foot eight, like power wing who can pass, dribble, shoot a little bit. Versatile on the defensive end of the floor. Dennis Gates can coach his ass off at Missouri. Like, whoever it looks like they're going to play Tennessee. If Missouri can move on from that, I could also see them giving Alabama some fits. Yeah, definitely agree. Uh, it, it, the other one worth watching is obviously that Gigi Jackson game against Ole Miss that yeah. will likely, or it could be uh, on either. Uh, the way to put it is either Wednesday or Thursday will in all likelihood be the last time yeah. you can see Gigi Jackson play college basketball this season. So I would say that that could be a valuable one. Uh, he's a very polarizing prospect for front offices, and we will see if uh, that ends up being true throughout the process. Let's go to the Big 12 now. Big 12 is in a very interesting Oof. spot here. Look at this. Look at this graphic. Just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. stuff by yeah, the Big nice 12. Work. Good work, graphic designers. Okay. This tournament is seen within college basketball circles as one that will just be an absolute bloodbath. Uh, it, it is going to be competitive every single game that is played. From a draft perspective, none of those first round games are all that compelling. It's the quarterfinals where we're going to start to get some interesting games. Now, the one that immediately stands out to me is Baylor against right. Iowa, Iowa State. State. Yep. And the reason for that is not that Iowa State has a lot of prospects. It's that they are a very good defensive team that can at least pose some very real problems for uh, Baylor and Keontae George. Iowa State this season 
is, I'm pulling up the numbers as we speak, seventh in adjusted defensive efficiency right now. Uh, They did just beat Baylor over the weekend on Saturday on the road, by the way, uh, really good game from Jaron Holmes, uh, you know, a bigger yeah, six awesome. foot four guard that can actually physically match up with Keontae George. Uh, Keontae George had a lot of problems in this game against Iowa State in large part because guys like Osun Osuni, uh, Robert Jones, these guys really do a good job protecting the rim. Uh, Hassan Ward is another guy as well that I've talked about on the show previously. Good rim protector there. Uh, Seeing how Keontae George actually processes what happened on Saturday and tries to figure out a plan of attack against this defense. You get them two times in a row. How does he go about trying to attack the Iowa State Cyclones? How does he go about learning from what happened on Saturday where he had seven points uh, on three of 10 from the field and went one for seven from three. Yep. How does he adjust his game to try and be able to beat that Iowa State team? Is going to be a fascinating, fascinating situation to track throughout that uh, throughout that game. Well, and this is very similar to the G.G. Jackson versus Tennessee situation because I didn't think Keontae was very good against Iowa State the first time that they played them in the regular season. It was one of his worst, most inefficient performances. He had a ton of turnovers, I think five or six, picked up a couple charges early. The pressure that Iowa State put on him on the perimeter really bothered Keontae. I've noticed one of the things about him this year and Go NBA fans who are just tuning in for the first time around this period and, and reading mock drafts, seeing guys. Keontae George has been a little bit polarizing as to whether he's you know higher end of the lottery or back end of the lottery uh, as a prospect. But one of the challenges that he's faced all year is he struggles with teams that really pressure him on the defensive end of the floor. And I look at this bracket for Baylor. First matchup is against Iowa State, one of the best defensive units in the entire country who relentlessly presses you, hard hedges, ball screens, loves to get into the basketball. They've got a bunch of athletic wings, like Gabe Coucher was not a guy that you'd mentioned up there. He did a pretty good job on Keontae in their first matchup. Let's say Baylor wins that one. They're getting one of three relentless defensive teams in the next round. Kansas, who had a a major comeback against Baylor earlier this month with the way that they started really, again, pressuring the perimeter and and getting into the basketball with guys like Keontae and then West Virginia and Texas Tech, if one of them could pull off a monumental upset against Kansas, those are pressuring defenses that are long and aggressive and get into you as well. Like This is going to be a really tough road for Baylor in this tournament, but like you said, if we're framing this from an NBA draft perspective, It's going to reveal a lot about Keontae George and how he can handle aggressive defenses that really come for him. And speaking of handling aggressive defenses that will come for you, West Virginia and Texas Tech, two schemes that will come for Grady Dick in that second game there as well for Kansas. Uh, We'll say like Jalen Tyson, physical guy that could cause Grady Dick some issues. You know, West Virginia, another team that, you know, they do tend to be more of a ball pressure team, but guys like Emmett Matthews, uh, you know, even Eric Stevenson, six foot four, they often have him play up the lineup a little bit more. It's very, very possible that Grady Dick ends up in a circumstance where he has someone just completely like shadowing him all the time in this matchup and is forced to try and manage that, is forced to try and deal with that kind of pressure yeah. uh, 
in, in a game like this, just to kind of run through uh, what Kansas did against West Virginia this season in their first matchup. Grady Dick made four threes, had four free throws, five assists. He was the best player on the court statistically at the very least in this game, according to Kempom. And then in the second game against Kansas this season, it was much tighter. Uh, I think that was actually last week, if I remember correctly. Grady Dick again ended up with 16 points, but did turn it over four times. And it was a little bit of a tighter struggle throughout the course of that matchup. So I'm really intrigued to see Grady Dick. I'm also really intrigued to see uh, Jalen Wilson and Kevin McCuller. Kevin McCuller is a guy that has really stood out over the course of the back half of, uh, of the Kansas schedule in the big 12 as a player that could stand out uh, for teams looking for a great defender with some ball skills uh, with some real defensive uh, abilities uh, in terms of switchability, physical point of attack defense, everything that comes with it. Yeah, Kansas is just, uh, you know, Grady Dick's coming off of a rough game, probably one of his worst outings of the season this weekend against Texas, who revealed a lot about how you can pressure and throw different length and athleticism against him. So uh, we'll see if one of West Virginia or Texas Tech are able to replicate that in that uh, second round matchup against Kansas. Yeah, and look, we're going to get a weird matchup with Kansas State and TCU here. I don't really see any first round picks in that matchup. You know, we're looking at a situation where Emmanuel Miller uh, is really going to be key in that game. Uh, A great defensive player that's actually in my top 100 now. I know that Spins will love to hear that. Uh, Really, really interesting defensive player, Leonard Miller's older brother, uh, who is a fourth year college player. Uh, Really, really intrigued to see how that matchup goes. TCU. Uh, beat Kansas State in January. Emmanuel Miller had 23 points, eight rebounds, four assists in that game. Uh, and then in the second game that they played, it looks like Kansas State actually got them back and blew them out uh, in a matchup where Marquise Noel ended up with 18 and seven. So, you know, Mike Miles did not play in that game right. uh, against Kansas State. The first time Mike Miles will play in this game. So I don't know that it's worth diving into that all that much. But Mike Miles, another really interesting prospect. Keontae Johnson, a player that uh, if you don't don't look into anything else but on-court impact, uh, certainly a player that will be on draft boards uh, if you're not if you're not doing that research. Anything yeah. else for you on the Big 12? Is there the, the matchup we're hoping for is Kansas against Baylor in oh, the yeah. semifinals? Yeah, Kansas Baylor would be a, a ton of fun. Uh, again, if we're framing this from NBA draft standpoints, two kind of lottery guys that really stand out Keontae George at Baylor, Grady Dick at Kansas would love to see that collision in the semifinals. Uh, I think that Texas is a really tough defensive team to try to get past, and TCU just an experienced savvy group that knows how to win games. I like both of them as teams heading into March here. Uh, But as we said, like Grady Dick, Keontae George coming off of some tough performances here to close out the regular season, going to be key for scouts to see how they respond. Okay. And now we're up to, this is the ACC. Let's, let's hit the zoom button here. So Miami is the number one seed here. This is a weirdo. (laughs) What a year it's been in the ACC, man. What a year. Clemson, Pitt ended up as high as they have. Like Experience wins games in college basketball, but that's not necessarily going to help a lot of scouts uh, looking for future talent for the NBA. 
So from 24 seconds here in the YouTube chat, he wanted to know about Matthew Cleveland. Matthew Cleveland will play Tuesday in the first round because uh, Florida State had a absolute disaster of a season, especially early on. Uh, Matthew Cleveland is probably the guy that's most interesting among that first group of teams there on Tuesday, right? Yeah, looking up that board, that's that's probably the case, at least for this year. You know my long-term love for Baba Miller. Uh, he's definitely not ready to be a draftable prospect this year. But uh, Cleveland started the year really hot as a three-point shooter. It was a, a swing skill for him after a somewhat disappointing season a year ago. Uh, started out really hot, but he has cooled off significantly. So I think that there's a lot of variance for how he finishes the season here of leaving just a, a positive taste in everybody's mouth about the development of his jump shot. I will say <laughs> Matthew Cleveland took no more than like three or four three pointers in any game this year outside of a Clemson game where he took nine <laughs> and I, I will have to go back and watch that Clemson game to understand what happened there because <laughs> he does tend to be a very reluctant shooter I just don't really like the mechanics all that much I think it's like kind of a weird push shot where it comes from like uh, a bit of an angled elbow out and I think that he's gonna have to do some real substantial work he also generally does not make his free throws at a super high level, 62.5% over the course of his career at Florida State in two seasons so far. This is a guy that, you know, certainly I do have him on my top 100, but not a player that uh, I would suggest should leave this year either. Uh, You know, looking here, even in the second round, it just kind of goes to showcase this is not necessarily like a loaded year in the ACC prospect wise. No. So Syracuse, we do get the Judah Mintz show against Wake Forest. Judah Mintz is a player that very well could leave. And I think could be a second round pick in the 2023 NBA draft. Wake Forest. Uh, you know, I just tweeted out clips of yep. Bobby Clintman, uh, the Swedish six foot 10, uh, you know, wing forward, I guess you would call him just kind of fits a lot of different things that NBA teams look for. You know, honestly, if a team wanted to stash him this year, I wouldn't mind it, uh, or at least uh, promise him and then give him a real deal. Uh, I wouldn't mind it, but I would say that he is a 2024 potential first-round pick, more so than a 2023 pick. I don't really love any of Pitt's prospects. I mean, North Carolina's prospects have all just kind of disappointed this year. I mean, are, are you at the point where Leaky Black is your favorite prospect at North Carolina? I don't know. Um, uh, they're... I don't like any of them right now. Uh, it's just, it's expectations were high and they haven't held up to them right now. Like Caleb loves had a rough year. I've, I've never been a huge fan of Armando Baycott's translation to the NBA game. I'd hoped we'd seen more from Pete Nance this year than we really have. Like maybe, maybe it is leaky. There's, there's a lot going on in Chapel Hill. A lot going on. Yeah. I mean, long-term, I think it's Jalen Washington, but uh, at the very least, you know, for this year, I I think that's real. And then, you know, at the sixth seed there, you get NC State. Uh, Terquavion Smith is very much disappointed this year. And I think that you can make a real case that, frankly, he has been outplayed by his backcourt mate in Jarkel Joyner throughout the course of this season. And I I, I like Jarkel Joyner. He's a fun six-foot-one scorer, but he's not like an NBA prospect and Terquavion Smith had a 48.8 true shooting percentage this year. Like I, I don't even think Terquavion should really leave if I'm being completely honest. So 
I, I mean, where, where do you fall on the Traquavion Smith of it all here? Yeah, I mean, I, I always have liked the talent. I, I love betting on kids who are good guys, hard workers, and want to compete. And those are three boxes that I think Traquavion checks. But there's also like scoring guards at his size are kind of a dime a dozen. And yeah. if he's not going to be hyper efficient on high volume or have one standout skill other than putting the ball in the bucket, like how high do you really, really take him? Like as I've put together a lot of mock drafts recently, I've been trying to go through these exercises. There are so many times when I am looking there from like 22 to 34, 35. Okay. This team's on the clock what would Terquavion look like there? And there's another player who fits better, who's a better fit for that roster, who has higher upside long-term. Like I just keep pushing him back and back and back, not as much due to his play, but due to his fit in the NBA. And I think that that's, that's going to be a challenge for him to overcome. Super fun player. Like NC State is an enjoyable watch. I hope somebody tunes in to watch him for the first time and just says, man, those guards can go. Like They are really fun to watch. Kevin Keats has done a good job there this year. Don't want to disparage that by any means, but it has been a little bit of a disappointing turn for Terquavion, who seems to have a lot of top 20 interest a year ago in a pretty good draft class and hasn't been able to recapture that heading into this 23 cycle. Yeah, I just, uh, I'll be honest with you. I have Terquavion like into the 40s on my board right now. Like I'm, uh, he's a six foot four, 170 pound scoring guard who shot 33% from the field and always has had struggles at the rim and always has had struggles uh, defensively. So I appreciate the talent and I appreciate the ability to create pull up threes on some level. You're judged on what your impact is though. And unfortunately his impact has not been good enough. Uh, You know, just looking through here, we're going to get some fun ones. You know, Duke is obviously a really important team in this 2023 NBA draft. And any chance that scouts get to look at Derek Whitehead, Derek Lively, Kyle Filipowski is going to be huge here moving forward. Kyle Filipowski had a phenomenal game against North Carolina. Yeah. I am a big believer in this Duke team uh, making potentially a run under John Shire in his first year. I think that I, I don't know where the projections fall on this. I would be interested to see if Ken, uh, Ken Pomeroy, that is, has projected out the ACC yet on his blog. Uh, does not seem, I do not seem to be able to find uh, whether or not Ken Palm has actually released the ACC odds. But I, I think that, oh no, here we go. Duke is the favorite in the yeah. ACC. They, they would be my favorite too. Math, not even like math wise. Interesting. So, I mean, I think they're playing the best basketball of anyone in the league right now. I just think Miami is a tough matchup for them because they space the floor so well. They've got really good guard play. And with what you can do with Norchad Omier at the five, it makes it harder for Derek Lively to be the true rim protector that he is. That there's ways that Miami can punish what Duke wants to do, which is keep Lively around the basket as much as possible. So uh, if Duke can get past that one and kind of solve the Miami puzzle, which has been a challenge for them in some regard, they're they're definitely the favorite. I believe so as well. Uh, having said that, it's good tape to see. It's really, oh, really yeah. good tape on Duke. And I think that that's a fascinating one. I think that Pitt can cause them some issues. Uh, I don't really think Florida state or Georgia tech would necessarily Virginia, you know, the Reese Beekman hive is real and I'm not 
quite as high on him, no. but it is someone worth tracking uh, as a d- defense first guard. Miami is the one seed here. Miami has uh, Isaiah Wong, who is a guy that I am slowly but surely becoming more interested in as a combo guard who can really score. Uh, very shifty, has some real twitch as a ball handler. There's a lot there to be excited about. Jordan Miller is a guy that's about six foot seven, six foot eight, three point shooter, has real, uh, you know, ability in the like in the 15 foot in in area to be able to create shots that way. Norchad O'Meara is six foot seven center, kind of an undersized like defense first physical kind of center that will be good uh, for. Uh, good for that Duke matchup as spins. So eloquently put it Uh, three guys that, you know, top 100 players, whenever they decide to come out, but not top, you know, maybe that'll be this year. Maybe it won't. Right. I actually think Jordan Miller is auto eligible, right? He should be. Yeah. Yeah. Look, Virginia was the top seed in the ACC for a long time this, this cycle. And they have fallen on some, some difficult times lately. Just haven't been able to figure out, how to score the ball consistently offensively, but they're always a dangerous team with the way that they defend. You look at the the top four seeds here, or particularly Miami, Duke, and Virginia, and you understand that those are clear tournament teams and kind of the best of the group. It's hard to look at whoever's going to be playing in the first and second round and see who has kind of the cohesion and the firepower to make a deep run right now. This, yeah. se- this seems like a, a spot to look for chalk, for NBA draft teams, like draft terms, you're going to be watching Duke pretty much the entire time. That's the one with the first round prospects to really track. You mentioned Judah Mintz at Syracuse. He has my heart. I'm going to be paying attention to him to see if he's a guy that ends up declaring. And if he does, he's probably top 35 to top 40. And then Terquavion Smith, can he recapture lightning in a bottle and help the Wolfpack uh, not just make a run into March here? but reclaim some of the draft territory that he has lost this year. Okay, let's go to the Pac-12. Yeah, (laughs) not not all that thrilling of a bracket here, and this will probably be the one that we spend the least amount of time on. Washington, Colorado, you're going to get to see 7'1", Uber athlete Braxton Mia, who is someone that scouts – very much want to see how he develops over the course of the next couple of years uh, has a chance to be one of the best rim runners. Uh, I would say within college basketball, if yep. uh, you know, depending on what happens with Mike Hopkins and, you know, depending on what Braxton Mia's plans are moving forward, uh, you know, Cal Washington state, you know, Washington state has Mo Gay, who is a six foot 11 center with a seven foot five wingspan who teams really worry about the feel as much yeah. as anything. And, uh, just his overall defensive impact, despite tools that state he should be a great defender. Uh, you know, Utah Stanford, Harrison Ingram hasn't really panned out in the way that uh, evaluators would have hoped. Arizona State, I mean, not not really anybody on Arizona State that I'm wildly interested from an NBA perspective in. So you get to that Thursday uh, set of games. UCLA is probably not going to be playing anyone super interesting. Like, you know, all due respect to Tristan De Silva, who is another guy that teams have some interest in in Colorado. UCLA should buzz through that game pretty easily. Uh, Then the hope is maybe Oregon. Like, I mean, Oregon's at least playing somewhat well recently. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, Colorado just gave UCLA a run down to the the final minutes of a game last weekend, yeah, but that true. was that was in Boulder, so uh, you know, neutral site here. You don't necessarily expect that same magic to be recaptured. I mean, look, I'm looking at the the Pac-12 tournament as a whole, and I have a trivia question for you, Sam, and any listeners. Yep. Out. Do you th- know the last time that the Pac-12, or even dating back to the Pac-10? did not produce a first-round pick in the NBA draft? Hmm. Has to be a long time. Has to be a long time. Yeah, I'll, 19- I'll guess like 1985 or something. Ooh, it's close, 1988. Okay. So the yeah. last time that the Pac-12 did not produce a first-round pick. And I'm struggling to, to search for when uh, or, or who is going to be that guy this year. Yeah, I mean the the easy answer is Jaime Hawkes. Like he's he's the one that I think might extend this, right? He to me he's the the best bet at it. Like I've talked about Adembona a little bit recently as a guy who I wasn't too high on earlier in the season, and I've come around on a lot more just for the defensive tools that he can bring to the table and and his his activity and motor on that side of the floor. I think is really really strong. He's been efficient on the offensive end of the floor. I, I'd like to see a strong march from him, uh, but I'm, I'm starting to come around on a guy like Bona. I know Khalil Ware at Oregon has had a lot of preseason buzz. He is basically out of the rotation now. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's it's hard to say that Oregon is going to be able to produce anybody there. Arizona's strength is their depth, not necessarily yep. having one major prospect like they had with Ben Matherin a year ago. And USC, you know, I like Trey White long term. I don't think he's a, a one and done type of guy by any means. So uh, this is this is a conference that just does not have a ton of high end NBA talent. If you're watching the Pac-12 tournament from a, an NBA draft perspective, it's trying to lock in some evaluations on guys who you might have in that like 25 to 45 range or 45 yeah. and beyond range. Yep, that's right. I think if you're watching the Pac-12 tournament, you're watching it for Europe scouting this year. And for Bill Uh, Walton. And for Bill Walton. Okay, next up, my favorite this year. This is is the one I'm most looking forward to, by far. It's the Big East tournament. So, is this, this is right, isn't it? No, this is, this is the women's side, I believe. Yeah. So, I'm going to have to figure out if we might, we might be talking about a different uh, bracket here. So, I will try and grab the Big East tournament because I saw UConn at number one and I was like, wait, UConn's yeah. like the four seed. Um, here, while we're talking here, Spence, what Big East prospects are you most excited to watch? Yeah, so uh, just kind of setting the stage again. I know we, we kind of did this with the Pac-12 uh, a moment ago of you know how many top draft picks are there going to be. I think that there's a, a pretty clear hierarchy of one prospect in particular who has the chance to go in the lottery from the, from the Big East, and, and that's Cam Whitmore. Uh, he's a Villanova freshman, really talented player right behind him. I think Jordan Hawkins from Connecticut has established himself as maybe the second best prospect. And then there's a flood of guys and a slew of talent who I think would be really good fits to have in the, the second round area. And maybe one of them can, can have a really strong performance and get into the back end of the first. But this is one of the deepest conferences in college basketball in terms of NBA draft prospects. And that's where I'm going to be really excited to watch, not just the matchups and how do they play off of each other, but who establishes themselves as a 2023 guy, 
who might come back to school and, and have another year at least for uh, for that 2024 draft. A lot of, lot of really good basketball is going to be played, though, because this is an underratedly deep conference. Yeah, totally. So, you know, starting on the Wednesday, March 8th here uh, in this first round, you know, Villanova is playing in the first round here. That's kind of the critical thing, right? Like you get to see them play Georgetown, they get a warm up game, and then they're probably going to go on and play Creighton. Uh, I'll do respect to the Patrick Ewing era. Uh, that might be that might be it uh, for Georgetown there. So. Cam Whitmore, in all likelihood, will go on to play Creighton. And Creighton is a team that can throw a lot of different bodies at him defensively. And they have a great rim protector on the interior to try and shut down his drives in Ryan Kalkbrenner. So you're going to get a great matchup, hopefully, with Cam Whitmore, You know where they'll try and maybe throw Trey Alexander on him for a couple minutes. They'll probably try and throw Baylor Shireman on him for a couple minutes. They'll certainly throw someone like Arthur Kaluma, who's big and physical, on him uh, for a couple of minutes here and there. There's a lot of different matchups they can throw on him on the perimeter and say, hey, we're going to present you with a lot of different options. We're going to present Justin Moore with a lot of different options, and we're going to make it difficult for them. And then when you try and drive into the paint, you're going to be standing at Brian Kalkbrenner and waiting for him. Uh, So I would imagine that is a game where Cam Whitmore is going to have to be either pushing out in transition or he's going to have to be kind of – setting things up on the perimeter and trying to knock down shots, which I think has been where he's been a little bit less effective this season. So Villanova absolutely demolished Creighton the last time that these two teams played. And a lot of that came down to the value of Eric Dixon, who is Villanova's stretch five, being able to draw Kalkbrenner away from the rim. And as soon as he did that, Villanova's guards were able to do a lot of what Villanova guards typically like to do, which is be able to get to the interior, be very patient with their pivots up and unders, find cutters and kickouts around them. And having a well-spaced floor is what really is going to allow uh, a guy like Cam Whitmore to thrive and get to the basket and punish college defenders one-on-one so this is a game as much about Eric Dixon who was phenomenal I think he had 30 points uh in the the last meeting between these two teams if he's able to consistently stretch the floor draw Kalkbrenner away from the lane that'll be big for Villanova and for Cam Whitmore conversely Creighton has a lot of these second round ish type of prospects like everyone from their starting five I could make a justification for having in a top 60 they're a really, really well-rounded and fun team. I want to see if they can make a defensive adjustment. I want to know if they can put Kalkbrenner on on Brandon Slater, and then that's have what Col- I would do. By Kaluma, the way. Kaluma guard Dixon and say, "All right, Eric, you're going to beat us from the interior. Take the ball out of the hands of Justin Moore, out of Cam Whitmore, out of all these other guards that we can have, and see if you can keep Ryan closer to the basket to be that interior presence and shot blocker." So it. Free advice there for McDermott. Don't know if he ends up taking it because I, I doubt anyone wants to listen to me on coaching advice. Uh, but you know what? Like That's going to be a really fun matchup. I was incredibly impressed with the way that Kyle Neptune schemed for Creighton the last time that they played. I yep. thought that was the best coaching game that he's had all season. Villanova is on a tear right now. And the return of Justin Moore, an upperclassman who can steady them in the backcourt, is a huge part of it. It allows Whitmore to get easier drives, easier shots, because there's that much more attention given by the defense 
to another perimeter threat. So uh, I really like the way that Villanova is playing, but let's also be real, Sam. This is a team whose season is on the line. Like this is, they need to make major, major damage in the Big East to even have a shot to get on the bubble. So that's right. uh, They're going to be coming at Creighton with everything they've got. Yeah. I think Villanova probably has to win this conference tournament to get in. Yeah. I don't even know if Xavier and Creighton wins with a loss in the final would get them in. Uh, The team that I think I would pick to win this is Connecticut. Connecticut is playing exceptionally well. Again, this is a team that we talked about early in the season when they were 14 and 0 as being, in my opinion, the best team in the country. Uh, then they went on a bit of a run where they lost six of eight games after teams kind of figured out how to slow down their off ball movement and figured out how to, uh, force Andre Jackson into not being a threat at all offensively. And now they have won, I believe it's something like, you know, eight of nine or nine of 10 again coming down the stretch. They've kind of made some adjustments to their offense, figured out uh, how to get Tristan Newton a little bit more engaged at the uh, lead ball handler spot to be able to run the show for them a bit more consistently. And also Jordan Hawkins is just on an unbelievable tear right now that has pushed them toward uh, the ability to maybe win this conference tournament. And they're going to get a great matchup against Providence because Bryce Hopkins is a really good player that, you should at least track for NBA circumstances. Uh, you know, they lost that Providence. They blew them out recently though, uh, at home. And that was, uh, that was a game where Jordan Hawkins ended up with 20 points and Alex Caravan, who's a really interesting six foot eight kind of wing forward, uh, had a terrific night. And then, uh, additionally, this is a team where, uh, you can basically force Providence to play its one bigger six foot eleven guy in Clifton Moore uh, by putting Donovan Klingon on the court, and that's just such an advantage for Connecticut in terms of uh, getting in, uh, getting much less offense on the court in terms of spacing for Providence's offense if Clifton Moore is out there. So, yeah. I uh, Connecticut I think should win that game, and then we get a really fun matchup with Marquette in all likelihood, uh, all due respect to St. John's and Butler, where, uh, I mean, that was uh, th- that was just a really, really fun set of games where Marquette ended up beating them in Marquette uh, earlier this season in a pretty tight game. And then, again, Connecticut kind of blew the doors off of them uh, with their length and activity level uh, when it was in stores. So I'm excited to see what, Connecticut is able to do against Marquette. And I really like this Marquette team too. That's like the matchup. I would say probably among all of these conference tournaments, if I had to pick one matchup, I really want to see, it would probably be Marquette and Connecticut. It'd be super fun game. Uh, Look, I think you hit the nail on the head with UConn. Like they're the most dangerous team in March in terms of just the depth that they have and the different ways they can beat you. They're huge across the board. We talked about UConn early in the year when they were rising up to, you know, top of the country there and started out the season so strong as an unbeaten. Like when they're really clicking, Jordan Hawkins is making shots, Tristan Newton is engaged, they're so hard to beat because they space the floor effectively. They've got two bigs in Adama Sonogo and Donovan Klingon that can just destroy you on the interior. And they defend. They want to get after it and apply pressure on the perimeter because they always know they have length and size behind them to help them out. So UConn's going to be a super dangerous team, but I don't think there's anyone in the Big East more fun to watch than Marquette, just with the way that they move the ball. They've got two 
elite passers. One is a guard, one is a big, and Igadaro and Tyler Kolick. Like they're just they're a really really fun team to watch. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And you know, we didn't talk about Xavier here. Colby Jones is a potential <laughs> first round pick, yep. in my opinion, as well. And you know, we're going to get a really interesting matchup with Seton Hall. Uh, in all likelihood, in that quarterfinal matchup, Seton Hall is a good defensive team that can switch and be versatile in a lot of different ways. Shaheen Holloway is very good at scheming in these tournament settings, as we saw last year at St. Peter's. So really, really intriguing conference tournament that I'm excited to watch. But uh, even more exciting is we finally have a Big Ten uh, bracket here which is why we waited until last on the Big Ten because uh, who was still playing? I can't remember. So uh, Rutgers and Northwestern were still playing, and then I believe it was uh, Minnesota and Wisconsin as the two late games there. Yep. So Wednesday at the Big Ten tournament, we get Ohio State and Wisconsin. Critical matchup for Bryce Sensabaugh. We'll really, really need uh, to showcase himself well there. And if they can win that matchup, and they will, it'll be basically a toss up against Wisconsin. Uh, they'll get Iowa, and that will be an immediate matchup that NBA scouts will want to get to because it'll be Chris Murray against Bryce Sensabaugh, two potential top 20 picks, uh, two guys that are big, physical, six foot six to six foot eight, wings that can shoot, uh, that can be high level shot makers in some way. Really, really exciting set of tournament uh, games there. Yeah, that first uh, that first round is going to be big for Ohio State because Wisconsin. I mean, they're they're a they're a good team. The Big Ten is filled with a lot of good teams in here, and Sensabaugh is going to have to get past a tough first round matchup in order to give scouts what they really want, which is the the game against Iowa. Iowa is just one of the more bipolar teams that you'll find. Like some games where yep. their offense is so potent and powerful that they can't lose to anybody. They can come from what. 11 down with 30 seconds to go and force a game to overtime against Michigan state, or they can lay an egg and do pretty much nothing against Northwestern a week later. So, so many different ways that, that that matchup could go in the second round with Ohio state. That's the thing about this big 10 tournament. There is almost no separation from like two to eight, two to nine uh, in terms of just their team performance here, like Northwestern being on that two line, no one saw that coming into the season. They're experienced and mature, but this is going to be very matchup driven and very much like throw the bracket out the window. Just expect chaos this entire week because anybody can beat anybody to, to take that even further. That first round Ohio state, like if they get hot and how bipolar Iowa is, yeah, maybe Ohio state ends up moving on to Friday. Nebraska has won four of their last five and is starting to score the basketball. It's a good matchup with them in the second round against Maryland, who also a very like hot or cold type of team in the way that they've been producing this year. We could see two teams from Wednesday make a push into that that Friday and that third round. This is going to be just chaos across the board. Absolute chaos. It's exactly right. And honestly, like I'm not terribly disappointed with how that bracket ended up for Ohio State. Like <laughs> Iowa is a team that I yep. think that you know, they can cause problems against Michigan State. Uh, you know, Ohio State just played them really tight over the weekend or during the week. I can't remember which one it was. All of these games and days blend together. The problem is they're going to play Purdue and Purdue just will absolutely, I think, slice them uh, at the end of the day. Uh, basically from the second half of their first matchup onward, it's been pretty ugly. Um, 
Yeah, the, the other big matchup here that I'm looking forward to is Rutgers-Michigan. Michigan has two guys in Jet Howard and Kobe Bufkin that I think have a chance to be first-round picks. And Rutgers is a team that will cause them problems on defense. Like, Rutgers is one oh of the absolute top five defenses in college basketball. Now, these two teams just played, what, last Thursday, not the most recent Thursday. And Kobe Bufkin did really well in that matchup. I think if he shows again that he can play well against Rutgers in that tough defense, it will continue to solidify him in a pretty real way as a potential first-round pick. This Michigan team just has been terrible in close games and just has really, really struggled, it feels like, to take advantage fully of the talent that they have. Does that like seem fair to you? I mean, in some regard, like I think Juwan Howard does a decent job of laying their offense out. Like they play through Hunter Dickinson on the inside and there are moments when he seems unstoppable one-on-one. He's a good passer when they draw double teams and he does a good job of keeping Kobe Bufkin on the right side of the floor and Jet Howard on the left so that when they come off of dribble handoffs or actions, they're attacking with their strong hand towards the middle. Uh, But Rutgers has so many good perimeter defenders that they can throw at you like Paul Mulcahy and Caleb McConnell are going to be problems for Jet Howard and Kobe Bufkin to try to create against that's a a super super fun first round matchup Rutgers not playing their best basketball of late like they've started to slide a little bit more which is disappointing to see but uh, the Amori and Dickinson matchup on the inside is going to be a fun one as well those 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 two teams are are just uh, the way that they match up with each other Michigan being much more offensive-minded, Rutgers more defensive-minded, going to be super fun. So Kobe Bufkin, uh, over the course of their last 12 games, he's playing 36 minutes a night. He's averaging 16 points, 5.5 rebounds, 2.6 assists per game, while shooting 50% from the field, 43% from three, 83% from the line. Uh, has just been Absolutely terrific uh, in those games and really, 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 I think uh, looks like a potential first round pick in this upcoming draft. I've talked to a number of scouts now that have asked me the question, do you think that Kobe Bufkin is a better prospect than Jet Howard? And I think that is a real conversation worth having at this point. So Penn State, Illinois will be fun. Penn State has a couple of guys in Seth Lundy and Jalen Pickett that are quite good. Uh, college players as older upper class seniors. Illinois has Terrence Shannon, who has been a bit disappointing throughout the second half of the season after such a hot start. Uh, you know, Maryland has a couple guys like Akeem Hart, uh, that's pretty interesting. And, you know, Dante Scott didn't really ever take that next step. And, uh, you know, they could at least be a team that could cause Indiana problems maybe in that Friday quarterfinal set of matchups. But, you know, then we get Indiana with Jalen Huchfino and Trace Jackson Davis, both of whom are playing terrific basketball. Jalen Huchfino still a little bit hot cold, but six foot five to six foot six point guard can uh, you know really get to the mid range and knock down shots. Terrific defender, good passer, playmaker. Um, you know, outside of Bryce Sensabaugh, I would say he, he Bryce Sensabaugh, Jed Howard, and Jalen Huchfino are your three potential first round picks uh, outside of Kobe Bufkin in this group. Yeah. Uh, and Chris Murray uh, at, at Iowa. Oh, and Chris well. Murray, too, yep. yeah. Yep, yeah. Yep, 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 yep. Yeah, I mean, the Big Ten does have a lot of good good prospects in that, like, 10 to 25 range, where there's five or yep. six guys that are going to sort themselves out there. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be 
as indicative for them to play incredibly well in March. I think it's it's helpful for every prospect, but I think it's going to be much more about what NBA teams look for in terms of uh, fit for the team drafting. That's going to be the difference between some of them. Chris Murray being an older prospect, Jet Howard being much more of a shooter, uh, Bryce Sensabaugh having a little bit more scoring upside, Hood Shafino being a big lead guard. Like it, It's going to be much more yeah. about fit than it is necessarily about creating separation or differentiation amongst each other. Yeah. And, you know, Northwestern is just a really solid team. team. Uh, You know, Michigan state tough rebound. Malik Hall is a guy that, you know, scouts will ask me about occasionally and ask me what I think of him. Uh, You know, really good backcourt with AJ Hallgard and uh, Tyson Walker. Not a team that has a ton of like super high level prospects necessarily at this point. And then Purdue has Zach Eady and Zach Eady is, you know, arguably the most dominant force in college basketball, along with Trace Jackson Davis uh, on the other side of the bracket. That's what I'm hoping we end up with. I, I would like a Purdue, Indiana uh, grudge match, rivalry match, all of it for uh, this Big Ten tournament title. Those actually, no, be- that's a lie. That's a lie. <laughs> I want Ohio State to go to the <laughs> NCAA tournament. So I want Ohio State to win freaking like five straight games and do this but outside of that i would like indiana and purdue yeah i mean those two games have been such thrillers to watch from a college basketball standpoint i think we learn a lot about trace jackson davis every time we see him go up against the boilermakers and and that's going to be an interesting one for scouts to to take in like zach Eady is college basketball's boban marjanovic so if you enjoy watching somebody just dominate on the blocks one-on-one or demand double teams like, sure, tune into Purdue. They have immaculate offensive spacing and things like that. But uh, the, this is going to be uh, a really bloodbath of a week for, for the Big Ten in terms of not just who wins these games, but there's so much on the line in terms of seeding and births to March Madness uh, that we may see some really fun basketball. Yeah, and then, you know, any other – outside of the power conference structure games that we should look at, you know, Gonzaga is going to get to play San Francisco after San Francisco eliminated yep. draft Twitter's beloved Brandon Pajemski uh, over the weekend. Uh, I think Pajemski had like 22, 11 and nine or mm-hmm. something in that game. Okay. I did watch it and it was a bit of a slog late for Pajemski, like especially in the last, I would say 12 minutes of that game uh went to double overtime i thought he really did not deal with uh, san francisco's defense well uh but it was terrific throughout the first 35 minutes of that game and looked really really strong uh you know gonzaga is going to get a chance to play likely saint mary's again in that conference tournament and it's going to be really exciting maybe byu surprises saint mary's but you know, if we get another Gonzaga St. Mary's game, I think it'll be really, really fun. And those two teams have played uh, two really interesting games over the course of the season. Uh, we did have someone ask earlier, why is Julian Strother uh, not a top 30 pick, let alone top 10? Uh, shout out Cosmo in the YouTube comments. I mean, he should not be a top 10 pick for sure. But I think there is a growing case for him in the top 30 for what it's worth. You know, a guy that really just consistently knocks down shots, uh, super high level shooter. It's just the athleticism and defense at the yep. end of the day that holds him back for me. 
Yeah, a quick release too. It's a little bit low, but it's quick enough to be able to go off six seven, six eight, good size to play that three slash four position at the NBA level. I think he competes on defense. Like he he tries. He wants to be good on that end of the floor, which is more than you can say for couple guys who aren't great movers that are around that same size and shoot the basketball. Uh, I, I think just his reliability, understanding his role, knowing what's going to be expected of him coming into the league is probably going to get him. I, I'm going to go top 35, not necessarily first round because he may fall in second, but uh, I think that's a very safe range for Strother. Yeah, I feel like, you know, top 40 is probably where he ends up, somewhere in that range. Uh, the thing for Strother this year, particularly in terms of why he has not risen up draft boards in the way that Cosmo w- would like to see is they've played 10 games against tier A competition. And according to Ken Palm, he has a 48.8 true shooting percentage in those games, 31.4 three point percentage uh, in those games, 40. 40- Four percent from two-point range in those games. He was much better in those games last year. So this isn't to say that, like, oh my God, he just can't play against good competition. It is genuinely, though, a concern that his athleticism does not quite live up to what it needs to be to play at that level necessarily. Yeah, I think that's uh I think that's very, very fair in, in that regard. Any other games you're looking forward to? Like, do you want to see a rematch of, uh, you know, Houston and Memphis? Memphis, Do you want to see, yeah, like anything exciting there? I mean, from a prospect perspective, I want to see UCF try to make a run so I can get more more eyes on on Taylor Hendricks. Uh, Really fun player. He's just continuing to get better in a in a diverse. style this year like he's he's doing so many more things on the defensive end he's starting to pass it a little bit better than he did earlier in the season I'm, I'm really intrigued by him and want to see if he can lead the golden knights to at least a couple of wins here to, to make some noise in the uh, the aac tournament yep and then my guy would be omari moore at san jose state i would very mm-hmm. much enjoy it if the fighting tim miles is and omari moore uh can make a nice little run here you know really interesting just six foot six point guard essentially for the San Jose state uh, Spartans and Tim miles. He's this team plays super small. He's very good in the half court makes the right reads constantly. He's really improved as a three point shooter over the course of the season. He's shooting 34% from three after a few years where he just really uh, early in his career struggled to shoot it at all. Uh, if you look at the last two years though, like, you know, 253 point attempts. He's something around 36%. There's some real growth potential there. Uh, this is a guy that I have a pretty clear two way grade on, and I want to see more of him. So I, I would very much enjoy it if uh, San Jose State can go on a little run in what is actually going to be a really fun Mountain West uh, tournament between some of the guys Nevada has, some of the guys that Utah State has. Um, Boise State obviously is Tyson Degenhart and a few others. Yeah, they're. they're it's a good that's a good competitive conference tournament for sure. It's just a good league all all the way around. Uh Mountain West is one of the more underrated spots to find good hoops in the country. Yep. Okay. Uh spins. Tell the people where they can find your work. Tell the people I, I don't know if we have any other things we need to talk about. I'm sure you have not watched movies <laughs> recently. I have not watched movies recently. Uh, no. But if you want to find me, uh find me on Twitter at the box and one underscore or on YouTube 
Adam Spinella. My Substack, theboxing1.substack.com, has a bunch of basically what we talked about tonight coming out over the next two or three days, which is conference tournament previews from an NBA draft perspective. And as seasons are wrapping up now, we're diving into actual scouting reports. So uh, had our first video come out last night and a companion article coming out in a day or two to, to kind of go with that. So, uh, yeah, just keep it locked to the YouTube channel. Who did you do for the first one? Did Imani Bates. Oh, that, uh, that will certainly be one. <laughs> it will do, it will do numbers. It will do numbers. I, uh, I hope that that's true for you. Um, <laughs> yeah, let's see here. Let's see. Did, did the Imani Bates scouting uh, do numbers? Oh, yeah, not bad for a first day. Yeah, yeah. it might be okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this week, I will have something, as I mentioned on Friday, with James Edwards over at The Athletic talking about the Detroit Pistons. I will have another thing on Xavier Cooks, actually, who is the Washington Wizards' recent signing with Josh Robbins. Xavier Cooks uh, is the NBL MVP this year over here in Australia. And he signed a two-year deal, basically, with the Washington Wizards. Uh, I will have a top 100. I believe that is scheduled for Wednesday right now. I have the top 100 board locked. I have to just write copy about some of these prospects here. And then, yeah, other than that, uh, you're going to get podcasts two more times this week, and I'm really excited excited about it. Until next time, folks, go to theathletics.com slash game theory to subscribe go to the game theory podcast on spotify apple whatever podcasting platform that you use in order to support the show leave ratings and reviews do everything you can to help out in that regard go subscribe to the youtube channel sam or uh, game theory podcast with sam Vicini over on youtube that is finally all that i have to say i am out of breath until next time we will talk soon Thank you.